Well, hello there, and thanks for finding us. I'd like to welcome you today to the Recycler Secret Podcast. Regardless if this is your first time or if you've been here since the beginning, it's my pleasure to engage your earballs, not your eyeballs. This podcast is an open and candid interview with an industry professional who specializes in recycling or a subset of materials management. During our time together, I hope to dive deep into the person, their organization, and most importantly, how to duplicate their success, which I broadly call the magic. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome today's guest. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Recycler Secrets. Today, we're joined with Stephanie Kirsten Johnston uh, from the Recycling Partnership. She is the Director of Innovations and relatively new to the organization. And this year, we'll be giving one of the keynotes here at the Michigan Recycling Coalition's conference in Ann Arbor. We had a chance to sit down with her here for a couple minutes ahead of time, kind of pick her brain a little bit and ask her some of the hard questions on what's going on in the industry. So, Stephanie, your uh, session tomorrow is going to be in reference to um, the circular economy. Let's talk about that for just a second. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a topic that's come up more and more. We're hearing more and more about this kind of big picture idea of the circular economy. And from my standpoint, uh, the recycling industry has a huge role to play. Um, in the circular economy, but um, as that narrative takes over, I think uh, the recycling industry needs to fight for its its space in that territory and make sure that the the narrative doesn't discard the importance of of a good recycling, a good strong recycling industry as a as a means to manage materials. For those people that are listening that are a little confused on what the circular economy is, how would you define it? It's a good question. I think the way I tend to frame it is that if you consider that we live on a planet with very limited resources and finite resources um, and uh, the circular economy is really a, a lens through which to look at those limited resources and, and say how can we move away from the linear system that we've built for ourselves where we take those resources, make stuff and then throw it away? How can we make sure that the, there's a regenerative approach to how we're, we're seeing our resource constraints and how we're managing our systems and processes when it comes to materials and resources so that we're really getting the most value uh, from them and not discarding them without um, optimizing them from a, uh, the perspective of how much use we get from them and how valuable they are in our economy. So um, we've really built our whole economic structure around um, linearity and, and so it's more difficult than I think most people would anticipate to actually rebuild the economic system and and very often the circular part is what people latch on to. The idea of circling materials kind of makes sense but um, the economy piece is really critical to it because actually if you've got incentives in the economy working to facilitate a system that we've been we, you know we've built over a long period of time breaking down those incentives and really changing things up is what can be the trickiest part in lots of ways and you know we've really built our our economic growth around a consumption-based model and that for instance isn't going to necessarily um, facilitate this circular transition so some of the really core and fundamental elements of our economic system need to rethink at this point in time okay so now you've come to the recycling partnership from a brand from Correct. Heineken yep and so tell us about what you did at Heineken and how you made the transition over to the recycling partnership. So I was with the Heineken company in the U.S. for a couple of years, and um, I was leading the sustainable business work in the U.S. market. And as an importer, 
the Heineken company has um, a significant stake in the in the packaging space in the sense that uh, the company's bringing in a, 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 a lot of materials into um, the marketplace in the US. And um, as a, a very progressive organization wants to really take an active role in making sure that the system is um, in place to allow the collection of those materials at the end of their life. Um, a real classic example of where linearity can come into play, though, and, and uh, for those working in the industry, we'll, you know, we'll know that some of the materials that are playing out in the Heineken-specific space, glass, problematic, um, and so uh, one of my partnerships through my work at Heineken in the sustainability space was with the Recycling Partnership as a funding partner. And as a long-time member and a, a board member, I could see the extent of the work, the ambition of the work that the team uh, were doing, and uh, really that you know an action-oriented organization was out there really making a difference on the ground and using the funds that we were able to provide as a company to really make change at the systems level. Um, that was, I would say, pretty unprecedented. I've worked with a lot of organizations uh, through my role um, at Heineken that you know do a variety of different things in the environmental space, but to really see that action happening and to be a part of that organization as it grows and learns was pr something pretty special on the board side and after a certain point in time I just I kind of just wanted more and decided to make the jump over and work on the nonprofit side so that was fantastic so as you're digging in your you're what five months on the ground at recycling partnership uh, less than that three months three months on the ground yeah what is your biggest takeaway so far what's the thing that you've learned the most from the recycle partnership that you didn't know going into it I think it's even more of a reflection on the, the whole industry, really, um, that now is the moment in time where this industry matters, from my perspective, more globally and domestically than it ever has. And um, that it it um, it punches below its weight. It, it needs to, you know, really come out of its shell and, and uh, step up to its worth because... You know, the circular economy is a really compelling nar narrative and is one of many. And I think many of us are aware that, that plastics has tended to dominate a lot of the narrative. And that's all well and good. Um, we need an enemy uh, in some in some territories to be able to get action. But um, I think the the key thing here is really to translate the practicalities of the theory of circular economy into what is effectively a sustainable domestic materials market and uh, the you know the, the Chinese uh, situation that we're facing from a market standpoint and the you know uh, constraints from a, a funding and policy standpoint on the ground here in the US could be seen as a as a, a crisis moment or an opportunity moment depending which lens you look at it through because um, all eyes are on the on the system right now in terms of turning waste into a resource and who better to be that um, action-oriented group of people than, than the recycling industry. So, you know, one of the messages I'm hoping to leave with the crowd tomorrow from a keynote standpoint is, you know, how do we not see the, the recycling industry as the circular economy's last resort? You know, there's a lot of dialogue that talks about, oh, design is, plays such an important role in circular economy. It absolutely does, and it will influence the materials coming through the stream for sure. And, you know, reuse, yes, reuse, also critically important. But at the end of the day, we could really, if we only tap onto that narrative, see recycling as the last resort. And in my view, it's really the last line of defense. You know, it's really if, if we don't get the recycling system 
at a point where it's stable and um, and effective, then the the last line of defense in terms of capturing materials is lost, and that loss to the system is huge. It's also you know most citizens f- most prominent interaction with the materials that they're dealing with is through the recycling system and quite frankly it is the most significant reverse logistics that we have at scale in this market and um, so why wouldn't we start where we're already out front you know and and really dig in there and and work towards building a a stronger system as the as the last line of defense. So coming from a manufacturing standpoint can you talk to Design. I mean, you just mentioned that a second ago as, as plastics the enemy. Um, but, you know, it seems like there's a trend in manufacturing that we, as a, as a corporation, as a structure, we engineer and engineer and engineer and engineer. And we use the water bottle as a great example. You know, if you go back, you know, 15 years, the water bottle, you know, it, it took 40,000 water bottles to make a ton. And today it takes, you know, 90,000 water bottles to make a ton. You can't take any more plastic out of that water bottle and be able to ship it. And we see this across the country as, you know, we do changes. You know, Snapple is a great example of it in the last 18 months. Snapple went from their core glass bottle that they've had as their icon to a plastic bottle. Now, shape and and look is very similar. It's a very high-grade plastic compared to a low-grade plastic. But manufacturing as a whole... I don't want to use the word as our, our evil buddy in this, but it, it's definitely the guys that are challenging us, the guys and ladies that are challenging us the most, because they're taking products that were once a very durable item in the recycling industry, and we'll use Tide as a great example of that. You know, we went yeah. from a, a nice quality HDPE bottle mm-hmm. that had some tons of value to it to a flexible packaging with a Tide mm-hmm. pod. You know, with a stop in between to a off-spec PET orange that didn't make any sense for anybody. Yep. How do we get the manufacturers to really grasp the circular economy? That's really. I know a lot of them talk yeah. about it, but not a lot of them are really accomplishing it for us. I mean, that's a that's a great point, and I think it's a, a conversation that's really just begun. So, you know, at some point, um, I think that's going to step up another level, and I think it's going to be soon, particularly around plastics. And I think the the reason for that, and just to trace the history a little bit, I do, you know, we see a correlation. We know in the industry there's a correlation between the more lightweight a material, kind of typically the less recyclable it is as well, um, not just the less durable, but, you know, as you move to flexibles and film, you, you, you get less um, opportunities to kind of use that material in a second life or second use, use case. So, um, but the history and the trajectory of a lot of organizations has been to equate um their their packaging sustainability work with um cost savings so there's been a you know a long-term narrative around uh lightweighting and um this sort of overlap between the world of sustainability and and reducing emissions and um you know uh reducing cost at the same time and that's obviously acted as a big incentive um but has limits to it and you know i talked about the importance of the economic piece of this um of this puzzle it's really really critical that we um bring in that economic uh piece into the dialogue but i think the you know my perspective on this on sustainability as the underlying narrative there is that it's been driven by um an eco-efficiency mindset really like how do we do incrementally less bad to the planet now 
yes, that's better than nothing. I'm not going to criticize that approach. But um, at the end of the day, we're, we're still destroying the planet that way. We're just doing it a little bit more slowly than we were before. And, um, you know, it's Bill Madonna's famous line of, well, you just, you know, you might kick the dog less times in the year, but you're still kicking the dog. Like you, you have to stop actually doing harm and think about how you can do more good. So how can the materials be regenerative? How can they be um, a positive, um, you know, element in the system from a material standpoint? And that's, I think, the, the recognition that's beginning to happen on the design side uh, in a, from a manufa manufacturing standpoint as the connection between the beginning and the end of the supply chain becomes more apparent. In other words, as corporations become increasingly exposed to their, um, their impacts from a plastic standpoint in particular, and that's why plastics is our friend really, because it's become, you know, through the lens of the plastic straw or, or whoever the demon of the moment is, um, it's really become this opportunity for eyes open inside organizations to say, actually, our plastics volume, our plastics impact is this. And only by raising the, raising the profile in that way do we trace back to the designer and really dig into how much the designer understands design for recovery, not just the kind of short term thinking around reduction in haulage costs, reduction in emissions, which typically, you know, come hand in hand, as you as you alluded to. So I think as that connection between impact and, uh, you know, this sort of plastics wave of interest really hits home within a corporation and manufacturing standpoint, there'll be much more pressure to align the materials with an accepted materials list. And, uh, you know, as as more and more materials become recognized as demons in the recycling system, I think that is going to make its way up the chain. And um, either the, the solution orientation will become um, how do you remove those problematic materials altogether? Um, or how do you begin to develop technologies that allow them to be processed um, in the recycling system? Or, you know, there's emerging discussion, obviously, on the chemical recycling side of things. How do they become, um, you know, accepted materials with, with end markets and other, other non-mechanical routes? So, so as we talk about demons, though, and so let's back up to plastics for just a second. Yeah. You know, plastics, we're, we're less than 100 years into plastics, right? And yeah. we've done a great job of wrecking the planet with plastics. <laughs> sure All you got to do is Google Plastic River, and you'll see images of, of horrors as they come from around the world. And, you know, or it's the Pacific Garbage Patch or any of the other examples you wish to use. When do we as manufacturing or when do we as a society get away from accepting the easy route out in things in life and go right to how do we make things possible to to create that circular economy? And I think that's what it really comes down to. Is it not... One of the examples that a large grocery chain once said to me, if you want to see me stop selling one of those products, Matt, have people stop buying them. Yeah. How do we convince our general public, our, our citizens of the world, to stop buying things that are harmful? Yeah, that's a, it's a great point because people do like the convenience of, you know, easy pouches and multi-layer materials that they, you know, most most folks don't even know that what they're buying, right? But they know it's easy and they, you know, they'll uh, keep buying it for as long as they can. But um, I think part, you know, there's no, never going to be a single solution to this type of really complex issue. Um, one of the things that, that's going to for sure help is is the implementation of policy that really incentivizes alternate materials that are superior from a system standpoint, uh, from a circular economy standpoint, I should say. And um, we'll see that 
come into place ad hoc in you know in progressive communities where people are doing uh, you know a small component of the community is already participating in you know not using uh, plastic bags and, and and using reusable containers and that kind of thing and um, where there's pressure from citizens from a policy standpoint I think you'll see some swathe of swathes of change along those lines um you know the the plastics uh, I guess, dialogue has really come from a swell of consumer interest in how do we avoid the you know the ocean ending up with more plastic than fish by 2050 which is that awful statistic that always springs to mind and um so i do think there's a portion of the community who feel a real stake in that now whether they'll connect that up with their own behaviors and the and the inability to kind of get the convenience piece sorted with that um is you know the question remains on that but i think other than policy and consumer action, which will be two powerful components of the change. Um, I think the other part of it is is going to be development of technologies to also bridge us into a space where we're moving past some of those traditional materials so that we actually can close out the loop on the materials that we have created but haven't found end, end game solutions for as we've developed them. So my hope is that the as we catch up with ourselves almost, we've kind of manufacturing's been ahead of materials management for a very long time and this uh, time of, of extreme focus if you like global focus on the, the issue of plastics gives us uh you know an injection of interest and therefore i you know I, I would believe an injection of capital into the system that allows us to kind of catch up with ourselves um from the point of view of, of technologies and processing capabilities but there is going to be a point at which we have to draw a line and say you know policy has to come in and, and draw the line at these materials because they're just bad for the planet no, no matter which way we look at it um and uh, I won't, you know, necessarily speculate on what those materials will end up being. And I'm sure there'll still be patchy bands that come up in, in places that are more aggressive than others. But I certainly think there's there's going to be technology solving for some of that as well as we as we develop the processes to, to deal with some of these more complex materials. Well, and the policy changes do directly impact residential behavior. Let's for be sure. honest. Yeah. You know, it, it would take the bottle bill here in Michigan, you know. Mm -hmm. We introduced the bottle bill in the 70s as an anti-litter campaign. It's, it's unintended consequences. We recycle a lot of materials. Yeah. But as you drive through the, the highways of Michigan, you see less litter on the highways of Michigan than you see in a, in a non-bottle bill state. That doesn't necessarily mean there isn't litter and there aren't no. people that aren't doing the wrong thing. There's still plenty of people, obviously, that throw a pop can out the window because we see them on the side of the highway and there'll still be people that use plastic straws. Yeah. Um, you know, I always joke that you use that uh, Will Smith movie, iRobot in the future, and, and he goes into a storage unit and pulls out a crotch rocket, a motorcycle that uses gasoline, and the girl's like, a gasoline motor? I'm not getting on that. <laughs> you know, and so there's always going to be someone in the society that's going to buck the system, but we'll be able to transition most or a majority of folks away from it. So whether that's a plastic bag at a grocery chain mm -hmm. or a plastic yeah. straw you know, and those are the things that we're seeing, you know, in the oceans, mm -hmm. you know, we're seeing traditional core packaging as well. But yep. some of that, you know, is tied to countries that don't have disposal systems. So yeah, that's very true. So some of it is, of course, the United States and mm -hmm. other developed countries fault. Yeah, and leakage into the system. Right, leakage into the system. But some of it is from countries that don't have, you know, even durable systems. Yeah, even garbage yeah. collections. And yeah. You know, on the side of the ocean, they have a mound of trash that the 
waves tied up and pull out. Yeah. And I think as we begin to, as I mentioned, kind of identify sources of capital that can, can move into the system to support this issue, I think you'll see naturally there is a gravitation to uh, emerging markets. There's a big focus on Southeast Asia right now in terms of targeting um, programs to ensure adequate collection and trash management is in place. Um, and if we can help those those um, countries not to sound too, um, you know, uh, colonial about it that sounds awful I'm sorry um, if we can help some of those countries to leapfrog the issue and um, you know also implement viable recycling systems and incentive programs that allow for the collection of material then um, you know I feel that we may actually uh, step over our own errors in the way that we set up our own systems and policies and also it's easy to jump to the conclusion when we talk about policy that you know every element of the policy is going to hit the consumer that you know not necessarily the case and also not every policy has to be um you know regulation or other means to kind of uh, change behavior within a system and also incentives play a huge role if if there's an incentive for uh, manufacturers to be using more recycled content and um other means to kind of break down the virgin paradigm then um that can have a huge influence as well so as we see um countries around the world getting to grips with what the circular economy means in practice from a policy standpoint, from an economic opportunity standpoint. And uh, a lot of that's, be, that's playing out live right now in, in Brussels and in, in Europe. And, um, and as we see those experiments taking place, I think there's a lot for us to watch and learn from and see where the opportunities lie for the US to apply some of those learnings. You know, I want to say that Europe has some advantages over the United States in terms of adoption, mm -hmm. for lack of a better Cultural word. Cultural adoption. Cultural yeah. adoption. And, you know, when you look at the United States, it, it's, a, it's a troubling mix of individuals that believe in absolute freedoms. Mm. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, nope. but what that comes back to, and we circle back to that Will Smith movie, you know, 500 years in the future, here's this crotch rocket that should have never been still around that someone's hoarding in a garage somewhere and then he breaks out for good fun every once in a while. Not necessarily a bad thing, but it's hard to get people in the United States to adopt something shy of a law. Mm. It yeah, really you is. you may have a point. Um, I mean, I think we've always taken the easy road, even the reflection of um, the volume of single stream systems we have now um, in the U.S., is to me an indication that we've um, let ourselves off the hook, that we've tried to make it easier and easier for ourselves over time, and as a result, increase the costs of processing uh, the whole swathe of materials we were talking about earlier. And at the same time, in parallel, you know, the European markets and others who um, haven't given the easy way out have kept along with source separation, and it's culturally embedded to the point of you know, shock and horror, the thought that that system wouldn't be in place and people, you know, mindlessly sort their materials in a way that we could never hope to replicate. And I think an important learning from that is um, that it's hard to go back. When you take materials out of the stream, it's hard to put them back in. When you change behavior and lower the expectations from people, it's hard to go back. And I think we have to draw a line under it now and say, 
um, you know, we are where we are with um, many systems having gone to single stream. Uh, we need our technology, as I say, to catch up with what materials we're plowing into the system from a manufacturing standpoint. And we also need the private sector to step up where it's sought gains. You know, the, the private sector has benefited hugely from the freedoms that you talked about. And, and now is for the first time seeing a backlash through the lens of plastics. And so I really feel it's, it's both a citizen and a private sector moment in time to, to step up from an action standpoint. I appreciate it won't be easy, uh, but I don't think there's ever been a better time than now. <laughs> right. So one of the, the goals of the Recycling Partnership is, of course, helping to communicate the educational message on how we recycle. Mm. Can yeah. you talk to that for a second? Yeah, I mean, we see our role as working uh, really in an unprecedented way right across the system. I think um, for a, a long time, uh, the system has worked uh, with lots of independent stakeholders who perhaps could have been more communicative with one another. And, uh, and if we're going to make improvements in a system that's very... We, we like to phrase it as loosely connected but highly dependent in the sense that the stakeholders are all dependent on one another for the success of the system. So we see our our consumer engagement efforts as really critical in the, the way that uh, people behave in terms of the material capture at the curb. But um, just as important is making sure that the communities who are working with those consumers understand what is and isn't working from a b consumer behavior standpoint. And similarly, what isn't isn't helping from a MRF standpoint, from a processing standpoint, and right up the chain to the kind of end markets and, and background to the beginning again. So by being able to build a stakeholder network and educate uh, both consumers and communities on the ways in which to engage up the chain in that way, um, our hope is that obviously that has system-wide benefits and that really uh, everyone along the chain seeks to gain from that. But yes, it, it absolutely is critical that we build that knowledge, that repeated drilling with consumers around what is and isn't acceptable. And obviously we all know that varies community to community, but the more that we can uh, spend time understanding what it is in practice that makes people understand what to put in recycling and what not to, uh, it helps us to hone our practices and make sure that we're, you know, really using best practice in the case of communicating at the curb so that we can make changes as quickly and as efficiently as we possibly can. So municipal government has always struggled with communication. I mean, and it doesn't have to revolve around recycling. You can look at the water sewer infrastructure. If you do a rate increase on a water sewer bill in the United States, you've got a lynch mob show up at the next council meeting. And, and it comes down to... A number of things, but really understanding is what the, the core focus mm -hmm. is. And each each demographic of, of individuals in the United States have a different way of understanding. And, mm -hmm. and psychology is, is such a big part of this. Yep. And so as the Recycling Partnership continues to hone this message, mm -hmm. you know, what is one of the things that they've explained to you as, as one of the aha moments or the insights that they've gained? Well, I mean, I think that we do a lot of pilot programs, so we don't assume that in every community we're going to have to, you know, have success with the same message. And community coordinators for, for programs that we're working with know their communities better than we know them. And so while we have a set of core materials and core approaches and we're able to provide technical assistance and support and feet on the street, we're also very mindful that um, communities will have that insight a step ahead of us. So... Um, you know, they'll know if there are language barriers and, and demographic considerations for us to take into account. And so where we've run pilots in the past, what we what we've done is um, 
been able to take you know sample routes for instance that that give us insight into what does and doesn't work before we do a program rollout that affects the whole of a, a municipality so that we aren't assuming that we know before we even get underway and I think it's really important to kind of understand what you know but also what you don't know before you get underway so like I say we have a core suite of open source materials that that communities can use and learn from some of our practices but we're not going to assume all the time going into a new community that we know what's going to work and it's really a, a collaboration effort to kind of understand what what the nuances of the particular geography are as well so one of the things that i've noticed as a trend and, and you may disagree with me on this is it seems like as a as a country the united states that we've focused on the most demographic spots mm -hmm. and what that does is it has a little bit of a trickle-down effect but when you get so we'll take michigan Michigan's got, you know, the Detroit markets that have some communities that are 60,000, 70,000 homes, yep. um, you know, which is no Los Angeles by any means or no <laughs> New York City. Um, but then if you go a little bit further north and you get into some of the coastal communities, a large community is considered 3,200 homes. Yep. It's hard to deploy educational resources around a 3,200 home community and have yeah. someone focus mind power on that message because as a municipality of that size... The resourcing a lot less. The resources are a lot yeah. less, and, and each person's wearing more and more hats. Yeah. So how do you how do you suppose that we get those people on board? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of credit to be given to to Michigan in terms of um, the uh, being a state leader, you know, from a funding standpoint, and really putting out there the funds that are needed to help uh, communities around the state to really. Um, step forward and ask for support and for grant money. And similarly, the Re Recycling Partnership, we're really uh, working on varying up the range of communities that we're able to help. You know, we may have started with some of the larger communities knowing there was big impact to be had there, but we've just opened our RFP process. There's no minimum limit on community sizes now. So um, you can apply for the grants if you're a very small community um, or a very large community and there's no uh, discrimination as such we want to help um, everyone to access the the available tools and resources that we have um, and I think by setting a, a great precedent at the state level as well Michigan is really proving itself out as a leader um, my hope is obviously that more states will step up um, to the plate and just see the opportunity um, that state funding represents as well for some of the smaller communities and some of those less well-resourced areas so in the beverage industry, mm -hmm. what was your big takeaway before you left? What was your aha moment from the beverage industry? I think uh, the beverage industry is it's kind of interesting because the topic of this conference is looking back to move forward, or the title of this conference, I should say. And that's an interesting theme because I think what we're seeing, what the world is seeing in the beverage industry is some of the things that we were doing in the past were not such a bad idea, you know? Um, it was, we've gone all glamour with our glass bottles and now people are going back to cans and, and that's sort of a, an old school trend in the, in the millennial category right now. And, and we're seeing a lot of retro style cans as well. It's sort of like that, how do we bring back the old and make it look new? And um, similarly with, with kegs, the good old steel kegs, you know, um, they are reusable, you know, they go around the world. They have many, many lives before they reach the end of their life. So, um, uh, upping the emphasis on that type of um, material and really reflecting back on what was able to work in the system really well before we um, started to become, like I said, more and more convenient. 
one of my big takeaways was that some of the pla- some of the things that we need are already in place and we just need to kind of reflect back on where we came from and what worked and why uh, and not necessarily start from scratch I think that's sometimes it feels like oh we've got to start over but um, you know the beverage industry from my perspective is a good example of uh, an industry that's using some of the right materials and and some of the wrong materials but if you can focus on the the right approaches and uh, and stick with what works, and you know, no beverage manufacturer or supplier would would complain if if more of the beer, for instance, was drunk in the uh, in the on premise environment. Uh, you know, draft from keg is is what everyone wants, right? Uh, the best tasting beer, for instance. So um, so being able to go back to that that keg style and growlers, are obviously increasing kind of format now as well in uh, in the craft world. So. Uh, looking back to move forward is a kind of good perspective on things. So you mentioned cans. Right now, one of the things that we're seeing in the can industry is short-run canned coming out of microbrews where they're wrapping them. And that wrap is causing a lot of flare-ups and and other issues at the smelter. Has the Recycle Partnership tackled that yet that you're aware of? Uh, Not that I'm aware of, and I have to pass on that question. Yeah. So what we've seen in Michigan, we've got a tremendous uh, microbrew sure. uh, culture yeah. here in Michigan, which is phenomenal. And you'll get some of those this evening as we go out um, as a group in our what they call the grub crawl. Um, but what you'll see, and we won't see it here because we'll be on, on premise, but a lot of the cans are now coming with an adhesive label that's wrapped around them because the brewery is just running a short run of you know, six, 700 cans yeah. or whatever. And, and what that does is it, it takes an aluminum shell then and just wraps something versus having a printed can, right. which again introduces another material into right. what was once a stable stream. Yeah. And a lot of the microbreweries have no understanding that that's even an issue. No, I'm sure. Um, much like a consumer who buys flexible packaging and thinks it's recyclable. Yeah. You know, they think they're doing a good thing. You mm-hmm. know, we're not doing glass, yeah. so it's not going to break around the pool or... Yeah impregnating cardboard but yet you've you've introduced this other stream and that's that's that manufacturing trend and and in the states i don't know if we're you know some people will call that innovation yeah and and some people will call that a nuisance and you know policy to use policy to affect that would Mm. take three to five years probably and a lot of resources and the beverage industry is a very polar powerful advocate absolutely i mean i think the the key thing with issues like that that come up that um are small in scope but are potentially quite significant in impact um the key from my standpoint is identifying the critical stakeholders within the system who have the power to change that and yes there are the craft brewers obviously who are you know the microbrewers who are using this technique or using the new material but there are also the can manufacturers who have massive number of microbreweries who they're servicing. And to, to my standpoint, you're going to have more leverage with a, a bigger stakeholder with more customers um, and targeting those folks with whether it's policy interventions or right. incentives or education. Because, uh, again, there may just be a gap in information that's reaching back around, you know, recovery um, infrastructure at that point. So, um you know, from my standpoint, identifying those critical leverage points is where we're going to have the most gain in those types of issues. So coming into the the middle of 2019, what's your biggest challenge to accomplish yet this year? My biggest challenge to accomplish yet this year? 
does count does speaking at my first recycling conference ever work (laughs) (laughs) Ah, it'll be easy this is a good group of people (laughs) are you reading any books right now uh, I am. I actually, um, I read a lot of books about circular economy, which either makes me sound like an absolute nerd or makes me uh, admit that I am a an adjunct professor at Columbia University in New York and I teach a class on circular economy. So a lot of my time is spent reading uh, materials uh, that obviously will ultimately become uh, class readings for, for my group of graduates. So, um, Is there one you'd recommend? Um... I think uh, I I would really say that everyone in this industry will have all of this knowledge anyway. But if if somebody is looking for a good recommendation for uh, an industry player, perhaps doesn't know the plastic space so well, and given it's such a hot topic right now, uh, the future of packaging I think is a really great book. Uh, from a basics knowledge standpoint, really giving the perspective of um, the MRF, giving the perspective of the manufacturer, uh, looking at the recycling system for those who aren't aware. And it's, it's in bite-sized chapter pieces. And, um, and whilst, uh, so the, the author Tom Zaki from TerraCycle, TerraCycle have done some really interesting work on the kind of um, very niche material space in um, in the recycling industry. But I think this is a, a great um, entry-level read for, for engaging folks who are new to this world, really. Okay. If there's one thing you can leave our listeners with today, what would that be? One thought. This is for the recycling industry. Talk recycling up. Recycling is going to have its moment very shortly. It's, it may feel like it's in crisis right now, but crisis, as I say, can be reframed as opportunity. And I think, like I said earlier, recycling is the last line of defense in the circular economy mechanism. And we really have this moment in time to, to make uh, recycling, to build a recycling place in the circular economy narrative. So I would ask that everybody digs in and works together to do that. And if we, if we come together in a, as an industry, it's a much more powerful voice than obviously if we're all kind of biting chunks off one another and, and inviting. So uh, don't sweat the small stuff and come together as an industry. That would be my, my ask. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, Stephanie Kirsten Johnston from the UK, (laughs) Manchester, not England. (laughs) Yes, England, but Manchester, not London. (laughs) Not London, that's what I meant. Thank you very much for being with us and have a great conference. Thank you for having me.